Welcome to Plowing Through Brexit, Farmers Guardian's Brexit podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest Farmers Guardian Plowing Through Brexit podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Abby Kay. Today we're really excited to be talking to two fantastic guests with a serious level of expertise between them. First up, we have independent economist Dr Sean Rickard, who's previously worked as the NFU's chief economist and a government advisor. You might also have heard about the Farmers for a People's Vote report he recently put together on how a no-deal Brexit could affect agriculture. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you. And we're also really pleased to be joined by Derek Wilkinson, uh, another former NFU chief economist. Uh, We're blessed with ex-NFU economists today. Uh, Derek has also previously worked as the CLA's chief economist and is now an independent consultant economist and trade policy specialist. Hi, Derek. Hi, hi. Right then, gentlemen, I think we'll start today with the report I mentioned in Sean's introduction. The conclusions that you came to, Sean, were... um, pretty terrifying to be honest you claim that by the mid 2020s 50 percent or more of farm businesses could close if the eu left the eu without if the uk sorry left the eu without a deal can you explain for our listeners why you came to that conclusion um yes happily um it really arises from the coincidence of two brexit related issues the first is that the government's um projections or proposals for tariffs and non-tariff barriers post-Brexit. Essentially, what the government are proposing is that uh, farmers will face the full weight of WO tariffs on any exports to Europe. So both agricultural produce and food projects will have to overcome very high tariff barriers in going into Europe. And on the other hand, the government has said they will remove or largely remove, and there are some exceptions, it will largely remove all tariff protection for British farmers. So not only will European farmers be able to import in here without any tariff and barriers, but farmers in other parts of the world will be able to import into the UK. And the effect of that will be to push down um, agricultural prices here. On top of that, the second um, issue arising from Brexit, um, it's now lapsed, of course, but no doubt the government will bring it back again. Uh, The agricultural bill, which said they were going to phase out the uh, basic payment scheme by uh, 2027. We know that something like 40 percent of farms in the United Kingdom are dependent on that payment um, to uh, make a living. So the combination of removing that support and pushing down prices via their tariff regime um, would make many farmers vulnerable. And what we said was we thought it could be in excess of 50% of farms um, would find they were no longer viable and therefore would leave the industry. Derek, as someone who's also got a lot of knowledge and experience Mm. of the UK agriculture sector, do you agree with Sean's findings or do you think there's anything the report failed to take into account? Well, I think that the the headline, first of all, is is, is misleading. Uh, The 50,000 figure, if if we take that as a a number, is is not derived from any of the changes in the trade relationship. It's, It's derived entirely. Uh, from the withdrawal of support payments uh, and the assumption that they're not that there's nothing replaces them 
and uh, and that that figure. I mean, I, I did I looked did a very similar analysis looking at the FPS figures and so forth about four years ago. Came up with exactly the same um, number, uh, fifty thousand. Um, and you can take that further. You can say that those fifty thousand farms employ about eighty thousand farm workers. They manage about seven million hectares of land produce about 10 billion pounds worth of food so we can we can build a scary story from the removal to simply the removal of the subsidies um, but that doesn't really address the issue of uh, what the actual effect of leaving with or without a deal uh, is and that figure I think is significantly lower it's probably more in the order of sort of 10 to 15 thousand uh, farms. Now, you know, either way, they're, they're, they're big numbers. And uh, what I would ask um, in particular case of talking to Sean here is what was the, the point of, of that additional uh, bit of information? We, we, we've had lots of studies over the past three years of what the, uh, the implications for different farm types is under different scenarios. The big elephant in the room, it seems to me, over the past three years has been, well, if this happens, what do we do? We've scared ourselves silly over the past three years with all sorts of, of, of as you rightly said, Abby, terrifying figures. But nobody seems to ever take the next step and say, what can we do to mitigate these effects or to help the industry to adjust? And that, to me, seems to be the, the, the big uh, missing piece in, in, in all this puzzle. So what kind of thing would you propose? For, is it farm groups, rep, industry bodies representing farmers? Would you like to see them doing other things for their members? Would you say they could be represented oh, better? Yes, very much so. I think, they, I think it's been very disappointing. Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen certainly uh, groups like the HDB have done some excellent work and tried to identify what the uh, potential outcomes in, in, in different scenarios might be. But as, as I say, there's little point in having that information if you're not going to use it. And right now we're staring down the barrel of a no-deal exit in, what, 42 days? And what is prepared, what is agreed in terms of uh, measures and programs to help the industry, to give the industry the support it will need to help it to make the structural adjustment that, that, the, that these pressures will uh, cause uh, and, and enable the industry to, uh, to, to get through this. Can I, um, yes, can I come back there? I want to make a, a, couple, a couple of points. First is that we were very careful in our report um, to say we were looking into the 20s in, um, because there's no doubt if we walked away with no deal, there would be a great deal of chaos and upset, and that would probably go on for some months. What no one really talks about um, in this Brexit debacle is what the longer-term position is for agriculture. And I think you've got to be very clear. In order for the government to sell Brexit to the British people, they are prepared to sacrifice agriculture. When people like Jacob Rees-Mogg says the advantage of leaving Europe is that we have cheap food, what he is saying is we are going to import a great deal more food from the rest of the world at lower prices. Um, 
The figures we put into our report, and they're not ours, they come from independent forecasters. If we, under the government's proposals, in the year or two following no deal, we think that the price of beef would fall by 22%. We think the price of sheep would go down by 18%. We think dairy products would go down 6%, etc. And that is before they've entered into longer term trade deals with the likes of America and Brazil, etc., who want to ship in an awful lot of produce at very low prices. We've really got to wake up here. So you can say that, Solomon, and I'm not going to disagree with, 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 with the bulk of what you say, but the question then becomes, do we just fold up our tents and, and, and go away? Or what exactly is the trade policy uh, that's, uh, that, that's required in order to help the industry to, to survive and thrive? What's the domestic policy that's required? What are the measures and programs in, in, uh, that need to be developed in order to help the industry make that transition? Oh, that Derek, I'm trying to be, no, Derek, I'm trying to be very clear. The government yeah. isn't interested in doing that. Then if let's you read just carefully... No, if you read carefully their agricultural bill, it's a defensive yep. document. It's it largely is. saying what we're going to do is we're going to in, um, put in place all these um, environmental policies and things like this, and we'll throw some money at it, but there's no commitment to any funding, any level yep. of funding on it. Right. And essentially what they're saying is we're not going to attempt to compete on world markets. We're going to try as far as we can to try and protect you on the basis of um, these sort of environmental payments. The truth of the matter is they will not work. They know they won't work. They just wish to get by this and then import more food. And in fairness to the hard Brexiteers, they more or less say that. At least they've said cheap food is the future, import more. And at least, you know, the government should have the guts to admit to farmers that this is what the consequences of Brexit will be. Let's just even assume that what you're saying is true then what do we do? Do we just fold up our tents and, 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 and slide off into the night? It seems to me that what we ought to be doing is fighting for the industry, putting forward the policies that the industry needs, the detailed trade policy, the detailed structural adjustment measures and so forth in order to help this industry get from here to there. Well, I, well, and if the government aren't going to do that, then who else will? What are those policies, Derek? What policies would you like to see the government putting in place? Well, there could be all manner of, uh, of things. I don't have a I don't have a list I can give, give, give you right now. But I mean, there's going to be need for some uh, producers to to perhaps retire and and and, and let uh, new entrants in. There's going to need to be uh, probably some short-term measures for to do with price stabilisation. That uh, because the the the, the, the applied tariffs, the, the temporary applied tariffs, while they were designed. To, uh, to to um, to stabilize prices, uh, mm. there's still going to be some some price instability, and so we could have some some measures in place for that. What we what we need to be doing, it seems to me, is looking at all this research uh, that's been done for the AHDB, uh, Newcastle, the work Sean's done, and so forth, and saying, right, if that happens, what can we do as an industry working with government and others in order to try and mitigate the worst effects of that and to help the industry to to adjust there are for example as, as Sean mentioned the, the agriculture bill in connection with the withdrawal of the support payments 
there was a there is a discussion in there about some of the structural adjustment transitionary measures uh, that might be needed in order to help the industry to adjust. And they talk about the Tangerman bonds and and in, in money for for uh, for investment and and, and changes in, in business practice and so forth. Uh, now that that's all well and good, but that's not. Uh, coming until whenever the agriculture bill uh, returns and, and, and gets into place. What I'm saying is this needs to be ready now mm. so that if we end up uh, on November 1st out of the European Union with no deal, that we've got a folder in a drawer somewhere that says these are the programs that we think might help, that we can roll out, that farmers can apply for, um, that the, the people can, can can begin to look at that and say, all right, we didn't want to be here, but we are, and these are some of the things that we can do in order to try and help as many of these 50,000 or whatever it is number of, of farmers to to to, to um, adjust and, and, and um, survive mm-hmm. this um, Armageddon, as, uh, as, as the NFU call it. <laughs> but we can't. It seems to me it's irresponsible for people to come on into the media and say, if this happens, it will be it will be Armageddon. We will lose half the industry. Be all these horrible things happen, and then stop and not say, well, what can we do about it? No, that's very unfair, Derek, because the whole this thing was the farmers. Uh, for a people's vote. We are saying very clearly the very mm. best thing that could be was to be to stop this Brexit thing. Sure, um, fine. Keep but the if that doesn't happen, Sean, then what? Okay. Then you, you, well, you implied it just now. You said structural change. Structural change is code for farmers going out of business. Uh, the best way in which, um, of course, the, indus- the industry will survive. It will just be a much smaller industry than it is today. And you'll probably not, uh, the hills and the um, you know, uh, uplands, etc. cetera, uh, that we will probably see a dramatic reduction in farming in those sort of areas. But the sort of farms that might stand a chance of competing in the environment that would uh, turn up after a no-deal Brexit would be large-scale, intensive um, farms relying very, very heavily on modern technology, not only on biotechnology, but Mm -hmm. also on precision farming. You've got to be big to be able to afford this sort of um, level of investment. You've got to be big to be able to employ the sort of experts you're going to need. It would be a very different farming industry. And um, what all we were really saying, uh, if you drill down through the figures, is the industry would hollow out. There'll always be um, part-time um, hobby farmers, an awful lot of people who um, live in farmhouses with small holdings who earn their livings in other sectors of the economy. Many of those people will continue to be there. There are right. big industrial farms. I'm sure many people can think of them uh, that really are very efficient and very low cost. In the middle are what used to be called family farms. They are the ones who are really vulnerable to what's coming down the road post-Brexit. And when you say, well, why doesn't the government put in place a policy? Why doesn't it? um, The government won't, A, won't have the money. If we crash out of Europe, there's going to be a big um, black hole in the public accounts. And it's going to be the hospitals and the police and the care for the elderly before farmers in that queue for that shrinking pot. Well, it may well be, but that's not that. that, But but what I'm saying is that the role of the of of organizations like the NFU is to represent 
and to try and defend their members. It's but not to worry about whether not, or not the farmers, or whether or not no. firemen and nurses will get money. Just a last point on that. Okay. To be fair to the NFU, their members are split. Half yeah. of them still say, we're quite happy to have no deal. Well, I, if, that's, if they really are saying that, knowing what's coming, it's their right to say it. And the NFU finds itself in a very difficult position if half its members say, we're quite happy to uh, have Armageddon come and fall upon us. Mm. So, I mean, we talked heavily about the possibility of of no deal Mm. there, but Parliament has legislated to prevent the government leaving the EU with no deal at the end of October, Sean. Do you still fear this outcome is possible or perhaps in March next year as opposed to the back end of this year? Well, I suppose um, the straight answer to that is... <laughs> uh, what uh, do we know what's happened if we had um uh, i'm going to say this if we had honorable politicians there wouldn't be any question we know that now that parliament has voted to take uh, to stop us leaving without no deal it just wouldn't be an issue uh, we wouldn't be doing it um but the government has refused um to say it will um com- comply with that but let us accept for the moment that we don't leave on the um end of october let us even accept, just for the sake of argument, uh, that Boris um, gets a deal and that we therefore go into this transitional period. And I come back again, this transitional period, it's supposed to last two years, could last up to four years. Uh, For that two, four, maybe even longer than that period, nothing would change for farming. We would really be as though we were non-voting members of the EU. So we wouldn't get rid of the uncertainty. It would just be pushed off for three or four years. After a period of years, presumably we would have come to some decision on Europe. It may be to remain or it may be to leave um, with as a free trade agreement. If we leave with a so-called free trade agreement, then everything I've just said about no deal will continue to apply. They'll be back in exactly the same position then as they would be if we crashed out now. Over the years following the setting up of a free trade agreement with Europe, um, imports were flooding here from the rest of the world and the support for farmers would be taken away. That's what the government intends and that's what we were writing about. So those options that you've set out there, a free trade agreement versus remain, is that are those the thing? Are those the options you want to see on the ballot paper for a second referendum? Um, well, an awful lot would de- depend on um, exactly where we had got to. The truth of the matter is that um, um, a deal, if they ever work out a deal, I think probably in a second referendum. you probably then have to offer that deal against Remain. If they don't manage to work out a deal with Europe, uh, then I think it would have to be no deal or Remain. But I think what has to go on the ballot paper is Remain. And um, if they've worked out a deal, that would be the one against uh, to be put against it. But I haven't a shadow of a doubt that if there were another vote, people would be a little wiser this time and they wouldn't believe the sort of claptrap they got before about the easiest deal in history, plenty of money for everyone and we could have our cake and eat it. They know now, now know the reality is much more serious and the trouble is agriculture is in the front line on this. 
What do you think about the prospect of another referendum, Derek? It's a hell of a gamble, isn't it? Oh God, I hope not. We haven't, we didn't do very well with the last one, did we? It uh, <laughs> hasn't really got us anywhere. Um, I, I don't think that uh, any referendum that excludes the option of leaving with no deal would resolve anything. I'm not convinced that a referendum will resolve anything. I honestly don't know. Um, to me, that, that those are sort of deeply political issues, um, and um, my 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 guess is, is is no better than anybody else's. What I have tried to do throughout this whole process and continue to try to do is say, uh, regardless of whether we ought to be doing something or not, how can we make the best of it? So when, when we, you know, we talk about having a trade agreement with the European Union or with America or with anybody else, I don't ask myself, is that a good idea? I say, if that happens, what are the terms of that agreement that the industry needs? And it's oh, a very come along, different... Derek. No, no, Derek, that won't do. You've known, you were what? in the NFU, and so was I. We right. have known for years... If there is a trade agreement with America, the conditions that the Americans will demand for mm -hmm. any trade deal is getting their commodities in here. Yeah, and we so will I've, not I've, be I've, able I've been, to resist it. I, 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 I've been in negotiations, trade negotiations with the Americans. I know how they, what, what they, they behave like. I know what their objectives are. What we don't know here is what our objectives are. We've heard nothing from either the government or from industry as to what our offensive interests are, as well, all we hear is our defensive interests. The Americans want this, therefore. Well, the question is, how can we address that? If this happens, it's not a matter of saying it's all terrible and it's all going to be horrible and everybody's going to die a slow and painful death. The simple fact is it may happen and we have to be ready for it. We no, have no, to no. understand what no. the Americans or Derek, the Europeans want and how we counter that. Derek, get off the academic soapbox there. The no, point it's is, a very practical soapbox. It's That's not how you go in negotiations. <laughs> it's not practical because, sure, in a trade negotiation, both sides will be looking for their advantages. Now, mm -hmm. as far as we're concerned, as far as I can see, if if we went trying to enter into a trade negotiation with America, this country here would be very, very keen to try and get its financial services and the like yeah, into yeah, America. Sure. And yeah, who would be sacrificed for that? Yeah. Yes, but then we would give up. And we're talking about agriculture here. I'm not talking about yeah. the country as a whole or whatever. We're talking about the agricultural industry. Just and as so, I said yeah. at the beginning, agriculture will be sacrificed in such an arrangement. It may Maybe. very well be that other sectors of the economy would gain and the government yeah. would say that's good. But agriculture, without any, um, any doubt at all, and you know this, Derek, agriculture would not gain in a trade deal with America. I didn't say it would gain. I'm, I'm saying well, that I, I don't, heavily. The, the, the UK industry doesn't have any offensive interests in, in, in international trade negotiations. It's an uncompetitive, high-cost industry by and large. What it needs to be able to do is have the trade policy measures in place so that it can defend the domestic market. And those... Uh, options are available if we want to explore them and, and, and push for them. And we can be 
down and tell, tell, telling the government, you know, yes, they may trade us off, they, all sorts of things may happen, but what we have to be able to do is to go in and say, if we want to um, defend our, um, our, our production standards, what are the options for us to be able to do that? If we don't like the tariffs and you criticize the temporary tariff schedule, we don't like them. They are they do only last for 12 months. There is going to be a review next year of what they need to be permanently. What are the permanent tariffs that we would propose having? Don't, you, don't get carried away, Derek. What you're going to have to do in a negotiation is negotiate them away. The government's already looked at the tariffs, haven't they? They've come back and said they'll adjust some, not for agriculture. They've left agriculture exactly where it is. Um, they are they absolutely certain that right. they want to offer people cheap food from the rest of the world. Uh, yeah, with a focus on trading with the rest of the world, and we know Liz mm. Truss is in New Zealand at the moment, um, yeah. what are your thoughts on this, Derek? There's been a lot of talk about the UK joining the comprehensive and progressive trans-Pacific mm. partnership, uh, multilateral yeah trade agreement with countries including New Zealand, Australia and Canada. But trade experts here say this would mean having to lift the EU ban on hormone-treated beef. Is this concern about UK production standards being undermined by future trade deals? uh, Yeah, there is a concern there. The the, the CPTPP doesn't uh, bring anything in particular that isn't already there. So I'm not sure. I think I know who told you that, but I'm not sure. Whoever said it is wrong. Uh, CPTPP doesn't do anything in particular other than reinforce the existing WTO rules in, in, with, with regard to uh, things such as hormone, hormone beef. And remember that the EU ban is not WTO compliant. That's why they offered in compensation for that ban the, uh, the, the hormone-free uh, TRQ that recently been in in the news so you know we have to remember if we're talking about hormone beef uh the ban of the the eu ban on that is is not consistent with wto commitments so you know the cptpp only brings in uh a, you know very little uh the the, the as Sean was just rightly saying, the, the big problem is going to be with uh, with probably the US, Australia to, to a certain extent. And that's simply because, and this is in the CPTPP, it's simply because the WTO rules require the scientific assessment of, these, uh, of the underlying reasons for, for, for the bans. And the EU have the, the more precautionary approach. And it's in that fundamental distinction between how you actually approach regulation under uncertainty uh, that, that we're going to be facing. We can, you know, we can stay within the EU's uh, approach to doing it, in which case we're going to have a great deal of difficulty uh, negotiating with those others to the extent that we uh, show some flexibility on that, as some in the NFU have been calling for for many years. Um, then um, you know, so that is one of one of the issues that we really need to start bottoming out very quickly. Whether we're talking about negotiating a, a trade agreement with the EU, or we're talking about with Australia or the US or Canada, anybody else, that question of how we um, 
maintain the particular uh, regulatory uh, stance that we currently have adopted or have, uh, have got from the EU, are we going to continue with that or not? And what does the what does the industry want? I don't know, because I do know that whenever the um, the precautionary approach doesn't suit the industry, it says we we should be science based and we should be much more objective about these things. Um, so I, I think we need to get some some clarity as to what direction the industry wants to move in before we criticise government. Mm. Okay, well, sadly, I think we'll have to leave it there for today, chaps. Thank you to both Sean and Derek for taking time out of the day to talk to us. It's been a fascinating and, I think, our most feisty discussion today, which is perhaps surprising the two economists. <laughs> and uh, to everyone listening, thank you, and keep your eyes peeled for the next Farmers Guardian Plowing Through Brexit podcast, which will be out next month. And in the meantime, you can check out fginsight.com forward slash Brexit for all the latest Brexit. Brexit news and analysis.